Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Captain Hunter's Podcast, a podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Got a great episode for you today. We have Miss Val Van Brocklin, former federal prosecutor, uh, regular contributor to uh, law enforcement magazines, uh, Police Police One, uh, law enforcement uh, officer, um, officer.com, lawofficer.com, and uh, she's been featured on uh, ABC Primetime News, Discovery Channel, uh, Justice Files, USA Today, National Enquirer, Red Book, uh, former state and federal prosecutor. So really, really pleased to have her on the show. Big time, big time. So we're, today we're going to start off talking about are all cops bastards? <laughs> so stay tuned for that. Are all cops bastards? And then we're going to look at uh, just the future of policing as far as training, uh, training their brains to think differently, to overcome these implicit biases that they have going on. So I'm really, really appreciative of her for coming on the podcast to discuss all that. Before we dive into it, you know, you guys know what to do. Make sure you're following me on Instagram, CPTL Hunter, Twitter, CPTL Hunter. My email is CPTLHunter at gmail.com. Just think of capped, capped, C. Uh, C-P-T-L-H-U-N-T-E-R at gmail.com Some of your videos, your thoughts uh, and whatever you want me to take a look at or analyze or think about and uh, we will uh, co cover that su subject if I have the time and you know <laughs> I will certainly make time to cover all these different uh, subjects and topics. There's a lot going on in the police world a lot going on with police reform and we want to make sure that we're staying on the cutting edge of all of that. So thank you so much for your love and support thus far. Remember, you can support the podcast through PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo. All of those are CPT, L Hunter. Uh, so make sure that you are doing that. A uh, dollar an episode, $5 a month, something along those lines, just to make sure that the podcast is going and continuing to grow. Thank you so much for your love and support and your kind words. Please keep those coming. I will read those. I've read them in the past. And if you send them to me, I will read them in the future. Thank you so much for, for uh, coming on. I really, really appreciate it. I had a lot of guests. And just about all my guests uh, always give me kind words, and I really appreciate all of my guests who have come on and give me fine words of encouragement, and I really, really appreciate it very, very, very much. Um, make sure that you rate, subscribe, and share these episodes. Very, very important. Rate, subscribe, and share. Hit that thumbs up. Leave a kind word there and, and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, make sure that the, that the analytics are, are able to find Captain Hunter's podcast when it comes to uh, people who are looking for law enforcement uh, type of podcast and not just law enforcement. Remember, we are branching out and talking about a number of different things in society and in the culture uh, and in the community that we need to change and to adjust and to fix in order in order to make sure that the community does better and to make sure that the police do better. we got to hold ourselves, each other accountable. And so I really, really appreciate it. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, we're not going to belabor the time. We're going to get, get talk about our all cops bastards. And then we're going to talk about the emerging science of brain science with uh, my renowned guest, Miss Val Van Brocklin. Here we go. So we'll start off here. Uh, so thank you to my special guest, Miss Val Van Brocklin. Thank you so much for coming on Captain Hunter's podcast. I really, really appreciate you being here. It's good to be here, Captain Hunter, and I've enjoyed our email exchanges and um, sharing of reading information. And I really appreciate what you're doing with the podcast. 
Well, I'm trying. I'm trying. And I, I, I thank you for, for the kind words there. And uh, I'll know what, that I made it when I start making some money off the podcast or doing something. <laughs> so, um, well, I'll tell you what, in order to help you do that, I waive my fee. Okay. <laughs> How about this? How about this? I won't charge you. <laughs> you waive your fee. I, uh, man, I, I really, really appreciate that. Thank you so much. <laughs> We'll, we'll fist bump on that. Yeah, yeah, we'll fist bump on that, yeah. <laughs> um, so speaking of fist bumps and all that, let's start off with, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and, and we're, going, we're going from there. All right, well, uh, you contacted me because I'm a monthly contributor for policeone.com. Uh, and that arose out of my career as a state and federal prosecutor. Um, and, uh, after I had been a state and federal prosecutor in Alaska, uh, my husband, who's just a little bit older, retired and said, do you think you could find something to do that would let us winter outside? And uh, we both spent many winters in Alaska and I'm originally from your neck of the woods, only further north, upstate New York. And I was a teacher before I went to law school. So, um, and I had done quite a bit of training, even as a prosecutor, primarily training law enforcement. And so I decided to try becoming a public speaker and trainer. And that's what I've been doing as my, well, special ed teacher. And I found it was very effective to be a special ed teacher before I became a prosecutor because it taught me how to communicate effectively with defense attorneys and judges. So. <laughs> So that 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 really did come in handy. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> you, you laugh, Captain Lawrence, when, I, when I'm actually speaking to judges and defense attorneys. I tell them it taught me how to communicate effectively with cops, and I get uh, the same. <laughs> okay. So I, I'll I'll laugh at that one too. <laughs> I, I, the audience, but um, but I I I did love teaching. Um, I found trial work was, you know, also kind of try to, trying to teach and persuade and, and tell stories that are believable to a jury. And um, so I began my uh, public speaking training career. And throughout that career, I've also um, written quite a lot. I was a regular contributor to officer.com, lawofficer.com, now police one, um, have written for police chief law enforcement trainer uh and and other law enforcement related publications very nice very impressive so thank you for coming on little old my uh, show i appreciate it it's, it's, it would be impressive if, if i was uh younger but <laughs> well you're it, still young you know? <laughs> I, I, a lot of time you know unless you close your mind if you spend as many decades working at something you do hopefully gain a little bit of knowledge if not wisdom yeah, yeah, I'm sure you've accumulated it. I'm sure you've accumulated it, uh, especially in your in your uh, your your comedic uh, uh, stances there with the being able to to communicate with people. <laughs> so that's a that's impressive. Well, there. <laughs> I learned that I learned that from police officers. Mm. It wasn't very many years being a prosecutor that I realized um, what a great sense of humor cops have and the necessity for a sense of humor because uh, given the work they do, if we, we all understand how serious the cases are, the stories, the broken lives, the tragedies, um, 
but if you didn't have a sense of humor, uh, you'd probably eat your gun. So um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm very comfortable when I have an audience of police officers knowing that uh, I can count on their sense of humor. That's not always true of prosecutors and judges, but it's very true of police officers. Yeah, that's something that we definitely stress. Uh, and when I was an instructor at the police academy, I also stressed that as well. Make sure you maintain your sense of humor because oh. it is so stressful. We see things that uh, normal human beings uh, do not see and, don't, and should not see. And so we have to rush into that and, and stand by the crime scenes and, and all that kind of stuff. So, so it's, definitely, it's definitely needed, definitely needed. So you're from my neck of the woods here, the East Coast. Uh, and we're, as I speak to you right now, there's a big blizzard going on out, outside there. But you're used to that, I guess, being in Alaska, Alaska and uh, upstate New York there, right? Oh, yeah. I can remember in kindergarten trick-or-treating in uh, two feet of snow with nothing but a snowsuit and a Lone Ranger mask on. So, wow. yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's... That's something. So, so, and now you're down in where you're in Phoenix or something. You're some, somewhere warm now, right? I, I, and I make no apologies because I've, um, I spent um, many years shoveling snow. Uh, my husband and I are fortunate. Uh, the work I do either writing or training, I travel on site to do the training. So we're able to winter in Prescott, Arizona, uh, oh, okay. but we find our primary home and residence in Alaska. Okay, that's very nice. As we talked on the phone, I'd like to make it to Alaska sometime. I'm dying to, to see it. Um, one, one day, I'll get up there one day. So I recommend it to anybody uh, in the summer and fall. Yeah, unless yeah. unless you're a real uh, winter person. Um, uh, no, I'm not a real winter person. So, okay. <laughs> so no, I, I am not one of them. Um, so, uh, um, so we did the fist bump before, and uh, so I want to ask you how you're maintaining your social distancing, how you dealing with COVID times, are you suffering any depression, or how you're just dealing with this whole situation we got going on? You know, I haven't suffered from any depression. Um, I, it's, it's been a wonderful writer's retreat for me, um, because I have some um, book projects that, that I'm working on, as well as, you know, just the uh, shorter monthly articles. Um, and I'm one of those uh, introverted extroverts, I think they call them. Okay. Uh, I am obviously as a public speaker, trainer, uh, trial attorney, um, I am able to um, put myself out there uh, with people, but uh, I recharge my batteries in my solitude. So um, haven't been depressed, uh, you know, keep family in the, I've kept been able to keep family in the bubble and that's very important to me. Uh, all my other socializing has been uh, socially distanced. Um, I'm all about wearing a mask. It, it, it seems pretty straightforward to me, uh, both my civic responsibility to other people, but if you got something that you catch breathing in, I just, when I go out, I mask up, uh, you know, lots of sanitizing, disinfecting. Either. And I got, I'm really excited because I got my first vaccine last week. Oh, okay. So how was that? Tell us about that. Any side oh, effects or anything? Um, just like the flu vaccine, there was a little bit of uh, tenderness um, right in the shot of the vaccine for less than 24 hours. Um, and that was it. Uh, and the uh, 
the setup they had here at a big um, sports arena was um, very smooth. You had an appointment time. It was easy to get in. You got through quickly. Everything there was masked and socially distanced. And I'm just, I'm excited about getting the second one. Now, do they schedule that already? You got the, or you just kind of show up for the second one? No, no, no. You, you got it. The first rollout to register was a bit much. And I think, you know, uh, the websites were for registration were probably put together very quickly. I'm sure they told the IT people, you got to set this up. And they said, great, we'll need five days. And they were told you got two. And so the site crashed a few times and stuff. But um, I, I have no, no complaints about it. I think people are scrambling as fast as they can to get the vaccines into people's arms. And so, so you recommend it then, you recommend the vaccine? I'm not a scientist <laughs> and I listen to scientists. I've been getting a, I first started getting a um, flu vaccine to protect my I mean, I, I was young enough at the time that ah, I don't need a flu vaccine, but I was regularly seeing elderly parents and I thought, yeah, but if I give it to them, so, um, and I've just continued since then. So yeah, I, I get a flu vaccine. I've had my shingles vaccine. Now I'm dating my, now I'm aging myself here. Um, I I've had my pneumonia vaccine. Um, I just heard about the shingles vaccine. I saw a commercial about that the other day. I didn't even know there was one until, and I actually knew a guy in my job who actually got it. So, he, so it's very, well, my, my father had a, yeah, it's very painful. Uh, I mean, I also, I didn't have anything to say about it, but I mean, my parents had me get a polio, a mm. small pox, chicken pox, measles, you know. That. Yeah. I know there's a lot of skepticism around it. Um, I did a show about that. I had, did have a medical doctor on the show uh, to talk about it. And and she obviously she was recommending it. So I know I just know that there's a lot of controversy about it, you know. So and I gotta be honest, I'm I'm a little leery myself. They first they said it's gonna take 18 months to do it. And just like your your story about the uh the IT guys, we get you got five we want five days, okay. You got two. I mean, it's kind of the same thing they did with the, with this vaccine. Okay, we well, got eight, 18 months, okay, and then nine months later we got a vaccine. It's like, wait a minute, <laughs> how do you shave in a whole nine months off of off of time? So um, but uh, but I, I have not heard any really, really negative uh, uh, stories from the people that I've talked to. Uh, who've got and, and, and as, as I say, I'm um, definitely not a scientist. I, I just kind of, in my head, I go, I decide who I trust mm. and I listen to them. Um, <laughs> the Joe Biden administration? <laughs> no, 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 Dr. Fauci. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. I trust. Mm. I pick what scientists or medical people I trust. And then I listen to them. And um, I, I also weigh, okay, um, for me, a senior citizen, what is my risk for uh, COVID-19 to get it and the effect it could have on me versus a lifetime of no bad reaction to any vaccines I've ever gotten, both as a little kid. And now, you know, I've never had a bad um, reaction. So I know that if I got COVID-19, um, my risks are much greater than I think statistically my risk is 
for a reaction to the vaccine. So that I'm I'm not a rocket scientist. I just kind of balance things like that. Well, I, I think that you I think you said something really really special there, and we're kind of getting off what we want to talk about. But I, but I enjoy, I'm enjoying this. So you said you balance this, right? You 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 pick who you want to listen to. Obviously, uh, being a prosecutor, you, you understand about weighing. Uh, the pros and cons are uh, looking at the evidence tell us your process for 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 choosing what doctors you're going to listen to um and just tell us your process about how you go go through that because i know a lot of people don't have a process right i made a joke about just listening to the joe biden administration or listening to the trump administration and they just believe whatever's coming through fox news or cnn so what is your 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 test that you go through when you're gonna choose anything in life but particularly this well, I, I think that's a good question for, and and this isn't what we said we we're going to talk about. <laughs> I podcast and talking to people like you who are intelligent and curious and want to be informed and um, and and are curious. You, you like to talk about all kinds of things. Uh, one thing that's changed for me over the years, um, I'd say over the last probably ten years, especially as a writer. And I interview like I interview different people and I'm writing about different topics that are not my area of expertise and and sorting those things out. Um, one thing I started to do anything I read before I give it any credence, I do a background check on the source. So this morning I read an article by a guy named Jonah Goldberg in my local paper. It's an opinion column. I Google Jonah Goldberg. I find out he was an editor for the National Review. I then Google the National Review. I do media bias fact check. Is this a conservative leaning source of information? Is it a moderate leaning source of information? Is it a left leaning source of information? Because I think all of those affect the information that you get. Um, with, with Dr. Fauci, it was much more personal. Um, I have a very, very close decades long friend who um, retired from disease and infection control. Uh, and she knows Dr. Fauci personally. And so that's another way you get somebody you trust, a very close personal friend who knows this person professionally and has known them for a long time, interacted with them professionally and when she told me, I'm going to listen to Dr. Fauci, that was good enough for me. Mm. Very good. So I, so, I, I, oh, and due diligence, due diligence, background checking, and then also, you know, personal references that, that you trust. I like that answer, quite honestly. It's not just uh, whatever political affiliation I have, or not just um, a, a, a personal reference, but it's, it's a little bit of fact checking. Along with that, you know, just because uh, we know someone personally doesn't mean that they're of the highest ethical standards when it comes to their work. So you still have to do your background. So I appreciate, I appreciate that answer, and I hope that people out there would would really listen to that and, and really take it take into consideration. I often say that um, people ought to, uh, if you listen to Fox News, tune into CNN sometimes, tune into MSNBC sometimes. If you listen to MSNBC tune into Fox News and see what's going on. And then, as you said, look at the moderate portions. Google who's talking, why they're talking, who's paying who's paying for the research and whatever. So I think that that's really, really important. 
Um, we're living in such a day and time, you know, that, that, you know, we have to be so skeptical about the information. We're not being informed anymore. We're being influenced. And that's, that's really just a bad way to go, in my opinion. So. And it's so, your podcast, though. You get to, <laughs> you, you get to say your opinion. I do. I do. <laughs> I get to influence people. I, I <laughs> so, the way the way we came about, and we went on to spend a lot of time on this. I know this, but the way we I, I found out about you is because I read a, an article last year uh, in Medium.com, and I don't have the article in front of me. It was called "All I Think It's All Cops Are Bastards" or something. Um, like that. it's Confessions of a Former Bastard Cop. Yes, Confessions of a Former. Thank you so much. <laughs> I should I should have pulled that up before. Confessions of a Former Bastard Cop, uh, and then he had the the acronym name of ACAB, All Cops Are Bastards. Uh, and so um, I read through the article. I thought it was. I thought he had some decent points. I invited the the author, even though he used a pseudonym, uh, to come on the show. Uh, to this date, <laughs> I have not heard from, back from him. In fact, I emailed him again like two or three weeks ago, right before I emailed you. And what I saw was um, that you had done a response piece in Police One uh, to that particular article. And in the article, you challenged the fact that uh, he may not have been a police officer. I believe it was your article too that said it might have been a a, a throw off from the some nineteen sixties uh, article as well. Am I right about that? Am I remembering that yeah. correctly? You are not not that it it was not necessarily written currently, mm. but I think it borrowed heavily from. Uh, anarchists and anti-capitalist manifestos from the 60s. Mm. Uh, the, uh, in terms of just the language even yeah. uh, sounding very similar. But the article I wrote, I took his his or her, <laughs> we don't know, um, uh, title, Confessions of a Former Bastard Cop. And I my article was Confessions of a Former Bastard Cop not um, because I, as I, and, and one of the reasons I looked into it is I have a, a black friend um, and I shared with you and I shared it in the article. We started out in the Anchorage DA's office together back in the mid eighties. Wait a minute. And there's black people that live in Alaska. I didn't realize that. I mean, <laughs> okay. <laughs> And I did it. <laughs> You're probably looking at it like, what are you doing here? <laughs> Go <And> ahead. <laughs> a, big a big Samoan population. I mean, and, wow. and why you would leave warm, tropical, yeah. beautiful place Samoa, uh, for Alaska winters, I'm not sure, but I'm sure <laughs> I'll hear back from uh, the last frontier saying, you know, that I'm dissing the state. I, I love, <laughs> I love, I do. Uh, and I chose to go up there um, for um, all of the wonderful outdoor things that still keep me having uh, Alaska be my home. But but this this friend and I, who we've been friends for decades now, um, way prior to um, a number of years ago, we began a dialogue in in which I asked her, you know, help me understand what it's like to be. Um, black in America and um, help me understand how I may unintentionally, um, I, I would like to more be more affirmatively anti-racist. So, you know, 
help help me understand. And um, so we had been in an exchange for quite some time and she had been sending me recommended readings, recommended viewings. And one of the things she sent me was this confessions of a former bastard cop. And it, I looked into it and I saw it was making the internet rounds mm. and people were passing it around and circulating it, assuming that it was in fact a police officer who had written it. And when I started looking in to the writing, I don't believe it was a police officer that wrote it. Um, and uh, I outlined in my article, the reasons I did not think it was a police officer that wrote it. And then why I thought that was important. Um, and the reason I think that's important, and it goes back to what um, we spoke about check your sources, drill down, mm. because I think that was a great marketing ploy. You know, you said the article made some good points. I agree, but I'm sure it got way more hits saying I'm a cop confessing to what bastard all cops are. Right. Then if it had been a community activist saying, listen, this kind of conduct that the article talked about is corrupt. Um, so I think it was a marketing ploy, but I also think it distorts the truth. Um, I think as a writer, you have a contract with your reader and to claim falsely to be somebody that you're not to try to give credence or weight to your arguments is unethical. And so that's why I thought it was important to point out and list the reasons in my article that I do not believe this was written by a cop. When I read through the article again for the second time, uh, I saw that there was 600 and something uh, responses. Uh, um, <clears throat> and uh, there was two or three that I read that really agreed heavily with your 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 point of view that this could not have been written by a police officer. And even the police officer who, the person who wrote this, who claimed to be a police officer was only a police officer for 10 years. And I believe it was you or someone else brought up a very good point. Okay, why are you only a police officer for 10 years? Did you get fired? Did you quit? Did you, you know, what What, what was the, what was the, why Why such a short amount of time? So, but. Well, that was, I, I didn't even know that. I, 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 or I didn't, I didn't hone in on the length of time they were a police officer. Yeah. Uh, or how they came not to be a police officer. Um, interestingly, the pseudonym that the writer used, A-C-A-B, all cops are bastards, was also common pseudonym in the 60s for all capitalists are bastards. Oh, okay. So much of the wording of this article by this bastard cop had to do with capitalism and the capitalistic structure that you know creates police and it was it it was very a lot of the language just um was very similar to 60s anti-capitalism anarchist abolitionist kind of language mm. very very interesting very very interesting i i have not read a lot of those manifestos i don't think i've ever read any of those manifestos You're too dumb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah, I don't think I've read any of those, but but I am interested in reading a few of them. I'm kind of a glutton for punishment like that. So, 
Um, so we'll talk, we'll, that's enough about that. All cops being bastards and stuff. We'll never know whether it's he, she, or it, or whatever. As a real person, was there ever really a cop? I did reach out to him two times. So uh, it's surprising that I check my email every day and there's no, <laughs> there's no email from him. <laughs> so, so we'll move on from that. So what we want to talk about today is, is uh, a very interesting article. You noted that I am a uh, diversity and inclusion instructor, implicit bias instructor. Uh, I did it for the police academy, for the police officers. And um, I, I had someone on recently uh, and we talked about the effectiveness of, uh, of uh, the science of implicit bias training. Is it effective? And you are releasing, did you release it yet? An article about uh, about not only the ineffectiveness of it, but how we should go towards brain science, talking about um, training officers to, to think um, along the lines of, uh, of sports athletes and trying to get them to think um, in different ways about how we approach training. And that is getting away from the fear-based model you know, with the amygdala and, and getting into more of a, 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 an ethical, not even ethical, more of a, a science of understanding how we respond to fight flight situations and then kind of going from there. Am I, am I saying this right? Am I? <laughs> well, I, uh, here's an area completely outside my expertise. <laughs> it's outside of both of ours. So we'll, str we'll struggle through this. <laughs> but um, one of the deals I made with PoliceOne.com when I was first recruited by one of their senior editors um, was, I want to write about what I want to write about. <laughs> okay. I don't put into a, okay, you only write about legal stuff or you only, um, and my, I, I sense we have in common that we're curious about a lot of things. And so they said, okay. And that's why my column is called Cop Gumbo, because I just, you know, I take headlines that interest me. Uh, I just, I get to react and then I get to interview really interesting people and, and, and do research, which I enjoy doing. And um, while I don't have the expertise, I, I, I can talk to people that do and present stuff that's going on out there. And I saw it, it came in um, uh, off the internet that the Phoenix Police Department specifically an officer named Officer Mike Malpass was doing a model study using brain scanners um, and some volunteer uh, recruits and officers. Uh, and that got me just, and he, Mike has written a book called Taming the Serpent, um, how neuroscience can revolutionize or modernize law enforcement training. And I just thought, whoa, this sounds interesting. So I spent a couple hours um, on a couple of different occasions on the phone with Mike, uh, did some of the reading he recommended, and I have written two articles so, for, so far for Police One on it. And the first one, as you mentioned, was titled um, How Brain Science Not, Not Biased Training is going to be the key to improving use of force in critical incidents. That's kind of what I focused on. Um, you know, that's things that are making headlines are critical use of force incidents are what are making headlines. Um, and I, I'm not against implicit bias training. I think implicit bias training has a very important place, not just for police officers, but for prosecutors and judges um, when it comes to 
Yeah, their decision making um, uh, can be influenced by implicit biases. So when you see judges handing down sentences to white collar criminals that look like them and saying, well, you've suffered enough, you've lost your, you know, your ability to practice law or medicine. And, and so, you know, I'm gonna find that you've been punished enough for this or this or this. And I'm thinking, oh, so if the person is a homeless person that comes before you, I see a lot of disparity in sentencing, um, primarily um, over socioeconomic classes, but also gender. Um, and so I think implicit bias training, if a person is open-minded, it can change an open mind and make you aware of biases that you weren't aware you had. I, I have experienced that. That's great if you're in a situation where you have time to think. That's why I focused on critical use of force incidents where you don't have this reflective time, where you're faced with um, what the neuroscientists call, you know, flight or fight. The, it, you are faced with what you see as a life-threatening situation. I, I think I, I have doubts that implicit bias training will improve the outcomes in those situations. I have doubts about that. And, but I think neuroscience, brain science offers some real positive hope that brain training can improve outcomes in those critical incidents. Yeah, that's very, very well said. Um, I, I, I would have to agree with you. I think that some people are struggling with, and I've read a lot of articles, um, being an instructor, I try to keep up on that kind of thing. And I've read a lot of articles, watched a lot of videos about people who have the same type of skepticism uh, concerning it's no, number one, it's overall effectiveness. And people often ask me as an as a instructor, as a former instructor, do you think it helps people? I don't know any of any statistical uh, analysis that said it, it has actually helped anyone, to be honest. Um, I do like what you said about um, whether if, if given a situation where people have the time to think prosecutors, the judges. I know that this type of training has been done at Coca-Cola, um, uh, you know, uh, some other uh, Fortune 500 companies. And maybe, yeah, you know, people, uh, a C CEO can think long and hard about who he's promoting. Uh, you know, he can take a, a deep, hard, analytical look at it. And in the articles that I read about it that you, that you forwarded to me, one was in the Scientific American dealing with uh, Oh, geez, what's his name? The former police chief from uh, Seattle, Norm Stamper. Norm I, yeah, yeah. Norm Stamper. Book, his book, To Protect and Serve. Yes, uh, I have to get that book. Uh, I had him actually on the podcast. Uh, we talked about his first book, so I'm going to have him back and talk about the second book. So so um, he talked about, uh, uh, you know, the time when he shot a police officer. Um, and then they, the article went on to talk about, you know, you have to make these split second decisions. Um, and 
this is one we all remember this Amadou Diallo in New York where they pulled out the wallet and he was shot. And I had a hard time. I was a young officer, about four years on a job at the time. I remember getting a lot of phone calls from my uh, people, from a lot of my family, from my friends, people at church. I want to know what's up with this. How come these cops shot him? How come they didn't take time? How come they didn't shoot him in the leg? <laughs> you know, all, all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, I couldn't articulate it then. Um, but but this these articles and this brain science uh, that is going on, talking about this flight or flight response, it's something that police officers look at. I was also a defensive uh, tactics instructor, so I had to talk a little bit about that as well. And, and have, we have to make, as police officers, these split second decisions that if we are wrong, could have drastic deadly consequences for ourselves. So we have to take, we have to err on the side of caution. And fortunately, and I say <laughs> fortunately and unfortunately, courts give us that, that leeway to make those kind of split second decisions it becomes a public relations nightmare when we are wrong, when it turns out to be a wallet or a flashlight or keys or a cell phone. Um, and so that is what's causing all of this type of uh, um, animosity towards the police when we are wrong, when they're wrong in these shootings, you know? And, and when I talk about improving outcomes um, and, and Mike, Officer Malpas and I talked about this, I'm not talking about improving the public relations end. And in other words, I'm not talking about, I have had to decide as a prosecutor if an officer involved uh, shooting resulting in death was legally justified or not. I've had to do that. I've also had to do, to guide, uh, coroner's inquest, where instead of me making that decision, a, a coroner's jury of local citizens made a decision about whether a knife-wielding uh, individual running towards a cop, the cop was justified in shooting them. And all uh, I'm sure all of your law enforcement um, listeners understand the 21-foot rule and, you know, the and so to have an expert testify about that, that I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what you mentioned, with, which is, it turns out it's a cell phone or a wallet. Legally, based on all of the circumstances the officer knew at the moment, it's legally justified. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that officer that shot that person that pulled the wallet out really wishes there had been a different outcome. Mm. Mm. That's the outcome I'm talking about improving. And what this brain science, um, I think the exciting potential for it, but also it explains, you know, when we have um, an incident like the one that you mentioned, um, you know, where we have a shooting and it turns out it's a wallet or um, a cell phone. Um, it becomes like you said, a public relations nightmare. And the explanations tend to be not science evidence-based, implicit bias, over bias and racism. Hmm. Um, 
when we know when you're in a critical use of force incident that is life-threatening, you got two parts of your brain. I mean, there are many parts of your brain, but to simplify it for me so I understand it, you have the prefrontal cortex region of the brain. That is the, the part of the brain that does the executive function, cognitive, thinking, ways, balances, uh, looks at an ever-changing situation, focuses, is, is, has attention. Then you've got the amygdala, emotional, autonomic, which means involuntary, nervous system part of the brain. Um, that's the flight or fight. That's the anger, fear, danger part of the brain. It, it's, it's been a very good part of our brain to save, save us from saber-toothed tiger attacks. Um, but policing is much more complex than saber-toothed tiger attacks. Um, when you go into the autonomic, emotional reactive part of the brain and it's controlling tunnel vision, auditory exclusion, right? That's when reaching for a wall, it looks like reaching for a gun because the prefrontal cortex part that does the, the executive function, the cognitive thinking is more calm, is able to take in changes in the environment versus auditorily exclude them, gets shut down. So if we can train officers, just think of it as like push-ups for the for the mind. Um, cops know all about muscle memory, right? We train muscle memory to free up so that you don't have to think about every step you take if you get a misfire. Um, we teach muscle memory. Well, this neuroscience is suggesting that you can do exercises and training with the brain like, think of the brain as a muscle, muscle memory, so that the brain will recognize, you will recognize the feeling of when your brain is still performing the executive function versus I'm total flight, fight, shut down, auditory exclusion, tunnel vision, and will train you to be able to somewhat control that better. Yeah. I was trying to pull up the article here, but my computer is acting a little slow here, but there was a part in it. If I can get it here, let's see. Um, let's see. I might be able to. Is it my article? Or no, this is, this is from Scientific American. Um, I might be I able to... It talks about uh, my computer is acting slow here. Uh, uh, let's see. I might be able to get it here. Uh, there was a part in it. Uh, let's see if I can share my screen. Yeah. Uh, can you see this? I don't know if you can see it. I can. Uh, so there was a part here. Um, I meant to highlight this. Mm. Talks exactly about the training that you were talking about here. Uh, I think it says uh, changing police training in the U.S. is not easy, 
However, there are many, there are nearly 18,000 local, state, and national law enforcement academies. Each has its own training requirements and standards. Let me get your thoughts about that. Do you think that we need to nationalize uh, the, this, this type of training that we're talking about here? <laughs> well, I I, yeah, I mentioned that in my article because um, I, I said, um, does any, I, I cite that and I said, does anybody see a problem with the fact that we have, um, what was it over 11, how many? 18,000. 18,000 and the only way to find out what each one of those is doing is to contact them individually. So um, what the article talks about basically scenario-based training is good, right? Right. But we don't, we don't even know how many law enforcement academies are doing scenario-based training. Right. And you try to contact each one of them individually. The neuroscience um, that I'm writing about goes like the next step beyond that. So um, what um, the Phoenix Police Department is doing with this volunteer group, um, they have these um, brain scanning headsets that looks like headphones that the officers and recruits um, put on and they're synced with an iPad and they're given different, and I'm using air quotes. I don't know if you can still see me. I, can't I can see, see you, me. yeah, yeah. Okay, they, they, they are given brain games on the iPads. For example, to keep a hot air balloon afloat or to drive a race car. Um, and the, they get biofeedback when their brain waves are in an optimal state. And, and I, I've, there's like five brain waves. You got your sleeping brain waves. You got your dream brain waves. You got your high arousal brain waves. You got your executive function, you know, cognitive, analytical, analytical um, thinking brain waves. And some are th theta, some are gamma. So <laughs> what, what you want is you want um, to have a balance between the cognitive prefrontal cortex executive function and that emotional autonomic nervous system. You wanna balance because the autonomic can be very helpful because it, it is quick and it's flight or fight. It doesn't, it saves time basically. But what you want is the best balance between those two and these headsets measure when your brain waves are at their optimal peak performance. Think an elite athlete who, in addition to the muscle memory stuff they have to do, have to make quick competitive speed complex decisions. Mm. So you want both parts of the brain, the autonomic muscle memory, automatic, don't have to think about every single step it takes to draw your weapon use it or to shout commands or to seek cover. But you also want that decision-making. You don't want that frozen out, locked down with the strong emotional. So these recruits and officers do these different brain games and they get biofeedback based on this headset measuring their brain waves um, that when their brain is in the optimal 
state for like decision-making reaction, um, they get positive biofeedback. The car stays on the course, it passes other cars, it goes really fast. Another way they get biofeedback is there's three colored circles on the iPad screen. Those represent three different brain waves in your brain. When those three circles, uh, different colors are completely overlapped, that's a bio, that tells the officer right now, your brain is functioning at peak performance for decision-making under time constraints. Um, and then they get points. So there's all kinds of biofeedback. Um, the hope is um, Officer Malpass, the next state phase of his study is to take these officers that have voluntarily participated in this brain training and then see, does that translate to qualification tests? scenario-based training, decision-making, to where they will learn through the brain game training, they will learn what it feels like to have their brain in an optimal peak performance state. And they will learn through the biofeedback how to get their brain there. Um, and then can they, then will that translate um, and they've been, they've been doing it with elite athletes where they do the same kind of brain training and then they try to see, will that translate to competition and improve their um, mental performance as well as their physical performance um, in competition. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's I think that that's certainly something we should definitely dig into and look at. I want to continue on with this with this article here. Uh, it says um, a second study showed that training in realistic environments, including uh, practice encounters with armed opponent actors in buildings and streets, improved their shooting accuracy under stress. Similarly, trials with 66 of the officers revealed that those who were trained weekly on their own in a combat sport such as karate or kickboxing performed better under high anxiety fights than those with no additional training. Although both groups suffered performance decreases when conditions shifted from low to high intensity. This kind of training clearly helps says a human uh, movement scientist, Peter Rendon from, I don't know what, Virginia University, whatever that is. <laughs> but to make it as relevant as possible to policing, it should also include anxiety uh, inducing measures and tactical decision-making challenges. Uh, so what what's, what I find to be interesting about this particular article is, is that it goes on to say those officers who just do some type of training. I know guys in my former department, I still say my department, so my department, they, they would go for MMA fighting. We, we did that weekly, sometimes two, three times a week. And what it's showing is, is that they make less crazy decisions. The article somewhere else in, in the same article, oh, I think it says it here. In a follow-up study, uh, he and colleagues found that giving officer, 11 officers additional self-defense and arrest training, then subjecting them to a high-pressure realistic scenarios such as, such as encounters with shoplifters or drunk drivers resulted in improved communication, alertness, assertiveness, and resolution. So in other words, the more the officers trained off-duty with MMA, kickboxing, and all that kind of stuff, they don't become more aggressive they become less aggressive. Their communication uh, abilities and skills inc increase because they're more confident in their in their approaches. They realize they don't have to go to the gun. They realize they don't have to overcompensate 
because they have confidence in themselves uh, as far as their abilities and how to take persons into custody. Would you agree or? Well, you know, that that's kind of gone beyond what I have um, researched or even talked to Mike Malpas about uh, the Phoenix officer. And, and because I, I'm always the first one to say, to recognize the limitations of my expertise, I've never been a police officer. Um, I, I, and I have great humility in being allowed by police officers to walk humbly in their shadow. But I, I have never done martial arts. Um, I mean, I carry, I go to the range regularly. I've taken some, um, you know, 40 hour defensive tactical pit, just enough to keep myself so that I can um, carry for personal protection and be safe and competent. Yeah. But when it comes to, I, I know I'm not going to risk not going home to my family to try to protect a stranger. Mm. I know I, I, my family needs me. Um, they'd fall apart without me, of course, I think. But I mean, it's a very different, I don't pretend to know would martial arts training make me more able to run towards the fire and danger and make calm decisions. I don't know. I do know that Officer Mike Malpass with the uh, Phoenix Police Department who got who wrote the book, Taming the Serpent, how neuroscience can uh, revolutionize modern law enforcement training. He began his adulthood as a mixed martial arts competitive fighter. Um, and he, through that, before he ever became a law enforcement officer, realized that the key for his success in the ring was between his ears, his brain. To, to get his brain in a mental state um, of peak performance. Don't get me wrong, he, if you saw him, he's very physically imposing. He still looks like he could have your six in just about any kind of situation, big guy. So he obviously puts in the discipline for good nutrition, uh, good sleep. And he talked about this, you know, good nutrition, good sleep, working out, staying strong, staying fit. But he believed the key to his success as a mixed martial arts fighter was the mental control and discipline he used. Mike meditates every single day. Mm. He meditates using a, it's called a Muse headset that gives him biofeedback about what he is accomplishing in his brain, his mind, his brain training, you know, it gives him biofeedback about whether he's getting his head to a place it needs to be for peak performance. He, he taught, it's like doing push-ups, you know, it's like doing strength training. It's, um, but for the mind. Hmm. Listen, I like it. I like it. I like it. I appreciate your, your honesty and humility. Uh, I didn't mean to put you on the spot either. So no, no. I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you, like, I'll tell you if I don't really 
Yeah. Well, I, I can tell you, um, we, we stress that all the time as far as everything that Mike was saying, staying physically fit, uh, uh, visualizing. I mean, we didn't go too far as meditation, but we often, we often talk about visualizing, even though we can't do the training that we want to do uh, because of budgetary reasons, visualizing how you would handle a situation. Uh, not only before the situation, but after the situation, uh, before, on your way to work, visualize, here's how I'm going to handle motor vehicle stops. Here's how I would handle, you know, whatever bar, whatever sector you're working in that night. What, what's in the sector? Do you have gang problems in that sector? Do you have a bar problem, bar fights in that problem? Visualize, visualize, visualize. That way you're kind of getting your mind geared towards whatever. And therefore you don't react, because, overreact because you've already worked out a game plan about how to respond. And of course, we talked about uh, um, staying physically fit and active and go, doing the martial arts, mixed martial. We did mixed martial arts, you know, guys are always getting together, beating each other up and stuff. So, um, and so we became more confident. We, 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 you know, we, we were just confident in what we did and how we did it because we didn't feel the need to overreact and immediately go to the gun. And I think that if any officers are out there listening to this or any training officers, uh, supervisors, please encourage your, your people to do something, um, whether it's the meditation, read the book that, that uh, uh, Taming the Serpent, uh, encourage your people to go to mixed martial arts classes, because I think that the, there is a lot of evidence that says uh, you can reduce uh, liabilities as far as uh, overreaction and, and you can it increases communication you have more confident officers on the street you have more confident officers they don't feel the need to always quickly overreact and go to the gun um, that's just my little well, you, know, you know there's always on the other hand and there's always another hand mm -hmm. um, I'm sure uh, you you saw um, or, or probably Chief Stamper mentioned in his book, To Protect and Serve. Um, one of the chapters I found um, most interesting was, I think it's called A Scared Cop is a Dangerous Cop. Right, right. And, he, and, and, and on the one hand, I don't think anybody would argue that scenario-based training is not useful. You know, you just, you gotta get out of the classroom. Yes. You, gotta be, you gotta be placed in a crucible of time and pressure and threat, and now add for young recruits the fact that you're being videotaped, you know, and it's being uploaded to the internet simultaneously. I mean, no pressure there um, with everybody and everybody's gonna be second guessing you. But one of the points I found interesting that Chief Stamper made, and I, say he made the point because this is a very experienced police officer, I'm not. But he said, you know, we may wanna take a look at, um, yes, officers need to understand that um, any like traffic stop could go south for them. Yes, they need to understand that, but we need to put that into a context of Statistically, seriously, how often does that happen? Mm. You need to be prepared for when it does. Mm. But he said, you know, this, this hypervigilance, this 24-7 hypervigilance that possibly we are communicating doesn't just wear the person down in terms of PTSD and stress and heart attacks and alcoholism and 
you know, suicide because nobody can maintain that. Um, they, might we not be better to train them? Yes, here's what can happen. Have the confidence that you're prepared to deal with it, like you said, the confidence. But he argued, you know, this it, hypervigilance in going into every situation, that's what can make the, the wallet look like a gun or the cell phone look like a gun because you you have put you've put yourself you've made every police citizen contact life-threatening and that has you go back to the autonomic part of your brain and that's where implicit bias lives your gut feelings um your spider sense tickling that's all autonomic but it it can shut out that executive functioning of let me look at everything let me look at the whole situation let me see what this so um the balance no it's it's you it, that's very well said that's very well said and that that's that is the that is the balance that that, that we try so hard to achieve and um I, I hope that we can really get there and, and not have such scared officers on the street uh, who are reacting and I, I do agree with you that getting out of the classroom getting into uh the crucible as you put it you know the scenario based training we did that we did it with uh we, we call it simunitions training and then we had another um there was a guy who went uh around connecticut um with um, a trailer and he would have uh scenarios videos and we'd actually use live fire you know shoot don't shoot decision making type of things um, so that all is important. And, and as you mentioned, you know, now we, we're sticking cell phones in, in our officers' faces, you know, when we're when they're interacting with people, because we want them to get used to, to the fact that this may become a, a, a YouTube video, you know, so a lot going on there, a lot going on. I really appreciate you coming on. I really do. Are you going to say something? <laughs> well, I just, I kind of wanted to, and I, I know these are very challenging times for police, but as somebody who trained at the Alaska Department of Public Safety Academy as an instructor for over 25 years, um, not on mats and bats, obviously on the legal things, I, the, I think it's an amazingly exciting, promising time to be a police officer. Now I know there are tons of people in your audience who are telling me I am full of, you know what, <laughs> oh, what the heck I'm talking about. But when I see the young recruits and when I meet people like Officer Mike Malpass, who's been everything you can be in law enforcement for 24 years, SWAT, critical incident response, defensive tactics instructor, street cop, dope cop. When I see meet people like him, and he's so positive and he's so passionate. And I meet the young recruits and I see that policing as a profession is so open to learning, you know, this brain neuroscience stuff that they're experimenting with and they're open to. Um, they're one, it's, I think policing is so much more progressive a profession than prosecutors or lawyers or judges. Um, as a profession, you're so much more open to self-examination, to self-improvement, to exploration 
than we stuffy folks that take ourselves so seriously are. So it, it's a very, very exciting, I think, potentially promising time to be a police officer. Well, that's well said. I hope I can use that as a sales pitch because I'm trying to get more people to to enter to enter the profession. You know, they they turn to be they seem to be turned off, uh, just across the board. You, well, you know, recruitment is down, um, and, and particularly it's down amongst uh, African Americans, and that's something that we cannot, in my estimation, afford to let happen. Um, we have to enter the profession, and um, I'm appreciative of all that you said, and I agree with a lot that you said that. Um, you know, we're very self-critical and we want to get it right. People think right. that cops just enjoy going out there, beating people up and shooting people. That, that, is, that is not the case at all. We want to do it right. We want to be respected. We want to go home to our families, um, but we want to treat people fairly. The vast majority of us want to treat people fairly. Um, and so when, when, when one officer taints the badge or performs poorly, it unfortunately uh, affects all of us all of the, the perception and the public relations it, it, um, trickles down to all of us. And that isn't fair. So Amen. I, <laughs> I got to get a, a great prosecutor story from you. What's, what's the best or worst case that you had to prosecute? Can you tell us anything about that? Or <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, you know, there are all kinds of um, prosecutor stories. I, you know, best or worst has its own definitions. Um, yeah. you know, uh, there were, and, and, and um, prosecutors and police officers, because of what they're exposed to, that a lot of people aren't, um, you know, develop uh, different macabre senses of humor. Um, but uh, uh, the, I think probably one of the most involved cases, one of the cases that I worked most closely with the police um, that was challenging was a contract murder car bombing case um, with four defendants. Uh, two of them were business associates of the victim and two of them were the mopes that the business associates hired, you know, to do. And, and fortunately the victim survived uh, the car bombing, but he was blinded for life. Um, oh, wow. So serious, tragic, terrible, terrible things. And even then, funny shit happens. <laughs> okay. Well, 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 uh, I shouldn't have said that. I was really good before. I, I just <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> but you know, I'm meeting um, with one of the main homicide um, detectives, the crime scene investigator, and I, I'm going through, you know, his tagging and bagging and photos and stuff. And I see this one photo and he's pointing to something. And I said, you know, what are you pointing to? And he magnified it and it was a human finger. And it was the victim's index finger, like 280 feet away. And I said, Lair, you, know, you tagged that and bagged it? And he goes, yeah, of course I did. And they weren't able to reattach it. And I said, where is it? And he said, well, that's the weird thing. It was in, you know, the forensic lab cooling refrigerate. It's gone. And I said, what, what do you mean it's gone? It, it, it disappeared. And then I start the whole thing of, gee, do I have to disclose this to the defense? Is this like Brady Giglio 
stuff that I have to disclose that we lost the victim's finger and um, it's it's a different world we live in. Yeah, yeah. Um, we talked about, this will be the last question. I, I, I often say that, so I'm not very honest when I say that. Uh, so <laughs> what, um, so we talked about, you know, please. We did have a, a we did have a like um, reindeer murder case that was a very reindeer big. Murder. Yeah, we had Star the Reindeer was famous in Anchorage, Alaska. It was a rescue reindeer in downtown Anchorage. And um, the um, killer got intoxicated and decided to harvest Star the Reindeer Deer, who was the city, yeah, who was the city's mascot. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. They, they decided to harvest it. We're very much a hunting culture in Alaska. And so um, I remember I did the first bail hearing on the defendant. And all I had to say was, Your Honor, the defendant killed Star the Reindeer. And I got like this huge bail amount. Um, oh but <laughs> the prosecutor that prosecuted um, the defendant, uh, when he was victorious at trial, uh, somebody in the office thought it would be appropriate humor to hang reindeer sausage all around his, the door to his office. Thanks from Star. This is, so, this is so politically incorrect. Yeah, I was going to say, that's horrible. <laughs> so much bad email. Or, or okay, well. It's horrible. <laughs> oh, my God. So, if it, so, so they got reindeer sausage. So it's okay if it wasn't Star, uh, you, you harvest another reindeer. But, but okay. And <laughs> um. Wow, that's that's really a bad that's really a bad story there. How do prosecutors? How do prosecutors? We talk about cops. You know, they need to detox or or you know they they're always dealing with hypervigilance and looking at the stuff that they look at. Since prosecutors are doing the same thing, right? You, of course, you're sitting in the office looking at pictures, hearing the stories. Sometimes you probably have to visit the scenes. Is there a detox or is there any kind of thing that that prosecutors do to keep themselves mentally uh, fit uh, instead of breaking down and all that? You know, I, I can't speak for the whole profession. Um, I'm an outdoors enthusiast. Um, and I, you know, the outdoor is my cathedral. It's where I find grace and redemption. So for me, you know, get outside. Uh, I have a pilot's license. I like to um, fly fish, fly, fly fish. I hunt. Um, uh, not big game, but uh, and, and, not, and not and not reindeer that are that are rescues in the middle of the city. <laughs> no, my he's won't big game hunt, but I my my husband used to big game hunt, but we are bird hunters and have a bird dog, and I like to hike and see kayak, and um, that's that's where I find my detox and redemption, and then you know friends and family and. Get 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 a broader picture of the world. Don't stay, you know, in your criminal justice role because we are disproportionately exposed 
um, to some of the, the dregs and also just sadnesses and broken lives. Um, so get out there in the rest of the community. Yeah. yeah, I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. Do you have any, you, you got articles coming up, books you're writing and all that kind of stuff. There's a website we can go to to read about your stuff or? Well, my website is primarily my training website. Um, uh, the, the books, I've got two books I'm working on. They're not up yet or posted or anything um, uh, yet. Uh, certainly uh, Police One, I have my, my own monthly column um, uh, author's link there. Just if you just Google Police One, uh, Van Brocklin, uh, my articles and my profile will come up there and that'll take you to my website. Okay, very good. Thank you so much and for I'm, coming. I'm trying to work less. Okay. I'm trying to, <laughs> and, and, and play more, so. Uh, listen, there's nothing wrong with that. You've, you've done, you know, you said mentioned 25 years of training at the academy and, and how long you've, were you prosecuted for? Well, I, um, my prosecution career began in 1985, so. Okay. And so listen, you've earned the time to, to, to play and to kayak and to fly. And I had a friend who, who was a pilot. He, I often think about doing that now that I retire, getting my pilot's license. I often think about it. So, but uh, it seems like it's so much, so much fun. But thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. I had a great conversation and uh, it's fascinating stuff that you got coming, going on. And I'd like to have you back at some point. No, so All right. Thank, thank you, Captain Lawrence. And thank you for your um, service, both um, when you were still with the department and what you're doing now, giving um, a forum and a platform for discussion, exchanges of views, tackling mm -hmm. some um, controversial issues like you are. It I'm serves trying. the well. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Stay safe and sane. Police reform is more than just a trending topic. My name is Lawrence Hunter. I'm a retired police captain from the state of Connecticut, and I've written a new book called Police Reform. And I talk about the evolution of law enforcement here in America and what changes need to be made in order to improve the relationship between the police and the communities that they serve. Over the past few months, it has become increasingly more important and more evident that there's something amiss and awry between the police and the communities that they serve. So whether you're about defunding the police or defending the police, if you're about Blue Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter, no matter what side of the fence you happen to sit on, make sure that you pick up your copy of Police Reform today.